This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. Hi, and welcome to EM Weekly. This is not Todd. This is Brian Colburn. A few of you might have heard me on other episodes, and maybe on the webinar or not, but I'm filling in doing this intro for Todd because he is down with the flu. And no, it's not the coronavirus. You know, he did a little traveling, went to Miami for the trade show, and just came back feeling under the weather. But this week, Todd is talking to Donald Vandergriff about command and control during a disaster. Donald Vandergriff has written many books on mission command, maneuver warfare, and leader development. Donald is a Marine that turned to the dark side and became an Army officer. What? Todd is going to get deeper into the book, Adopting Mission Command, Developing Leaders for a Superior Command Culture. Now, on to the show. Donald, welcome to Ian Weekly. Thank you. So, the reason why we're inviting you on to the show today is your your new book that you have out specifically about uh, command. And I know it's more military related, um, but I think it's something that as emergency managers and, and managing disasters in general, uh, something that we can learn from. What was your concept of the book and, and how did you get started with it? Thank you for having me on the show. Let me preface this that what people have found out, like Fred Leland of the, of the Walpole Police and then Tony Carroll, the D.C. Uh, Fire Department, uh, is that what I do is applicable to all uh, emergency uh, services, um, uh, police, uh, as well as fire departments and uh, first responders. So I wrote the book because everyone talks about empowerment. Everyone talks about mission command, not only military, but in law enforcement and even and federal law enforcement. And they kind of like, okay, we're going to assume it's happening, but it's not. So over the last six years, I've worked on this book. A lot of the time was spent translating German lesson plans, German manuals, uh, field regulations from the 18, late 1800s. Because while the Germans were bad strategically, they were untouchable tactically. Mm -hmm. And that's the irony. The irony is they were so good tactically that they thought they did not need strategy and they could just win their way through battles. But there's a lot to learn from them. Uh, so so that's why I wrote the book, because the Army today tells you go do mission command and then they don't tell you how to do it. So half the book is, or a third of the book is on this is what they're not doing. And this overrides to the Marine Corps, the services and the, and the uh, civilian side. And then the, the other two thirds is how to do it. So. What exactly is Mission Command? Mission Command is uh, the German term Optics Taktik, uh, which is uh, really uh, translated poorly in the mission tactics, but it's really empowerment. Empowerment uh, uh, committees is, is the old term for it from the early 1800s, i.e. Uh, what it means is <clears throat> I'm going to tell you what I want, my end state, and you're going to figure out how to do it. It really started in the under Frederick the Great, who had a Yonker class, the, the elite class, in order to win their loyalty, <clears throat> instead of going in there and seizing all their assets and then telling them, you're going to work for me, 
there was a bond that was made and a bond said, okay, you are loyal to me, but you run your affairs in your uh, districts and your provinces the way you want to, as long as you remain loyal to me. And then I'm not going to tell you how to do your business. Uh, so really, it really evolved from that period. But the first appearance of the word itself in German literature was in 1888. And then it was institutionalized in the 1905 uh, field regulations uh, of tactics. So we, we talk about commander's intent when I was in the service, things I learned, you know, specifically working with the Marine Corps and kind of taking that, the concept of commander's intent when we do our incident management plans, um, IEPs um, for a disaster. Is that basically the same concept, the commander's intent versus um, uh, what the Germans were kind of describing? Yes. Commander's intent is probably, well, the most important thing to do is establish trust. And that's established through professional development and a common sharing of, of shared uh, issues. The second important thing is commander's intent. And we've turned it into a process in the military. We've turned it into a format. Really what a commander's intent is, is a clear, concise, well-written paragraph that defines what my vision of success is at each level, which supports the higher levels, at least two to three uh, levels up. So what baffles people and the reason we try to format it into a process is a lot of people can't write that clearly or are able to sit down with a vast background of military professionalism or law enforcement professionals and say, here's my vision of success. You keep that. Now, there's a two-way contract. The contract is you uh, obtain my, my in-state, my vision of success, and in return, uh, I'm going to allow you to do it the way you think you can do it. So, so that's it. That isn't a long answer. That's to your question. I, I had David Marquette on the show. And he wrote the book, uh, turn the ship around, maybe captain of a submarine. And, yes. and he, he talks about the idea of intend to, right. And where he, and, and I, if you guys listened to the episode before you understand, but in the Navy, especially being a, a captain of a ship, it, it was very much yeah. master and commander. And that shuttle shift from, you do as I say to come over and said and ask for permission to coming over and saying, I understand what the, our mission is, and this is what I intend to do. Uh, I think is a huge shift. Does this work along the same idea with what we're talking about here with command and control? Uh, yes, it is. The, the, it works very well. And I've read his book. It, it goes along well. Matter of fact, the navies, particularly the British army, the Navy, uh, uh, from the uh, foundation of Lord Nelson was a big practitioner of, of mission commander, mission orders in that Lord Nelson would tell his captains, uh, as long as you're getting beside the enemy ship and, and, and defeating him, you're carrying out my intent because what, you, what the Spanish and the French attempted to do through a series of flag signals was control everything their subordinate ships do did to try to mass fires, which is kind of similar to what we do today with what's called synchronization of fires. And as a result, it was a disaster because all of Nelson's captains would meet with him and their captains would meet with their subordinates and say, like, if I get gunned down, which Nelson got killed on his bridge during the Battle of Teglifar in 1805, if I get uh, gunned down, you'll take over. And the intent is 
uh, find an enemy ship and get close to it and, uh, and fight it. And they figured that out. And then instead of every captain that was so passive in the French and Spanish fleets waited for orders to do what their uh, admiral was telling them to do. And it's kind of the same thing today. And in, in the, the pursuit, what I call the cult of the cult of perfection, uh, we diminish the greatest asset we have, which is individual initiative within, within the, uh, within the confines of, of the higher level intent. So, so that's our, that's our big problem today. And I think that's one of the reasons why we did so well as a, as a Navy during world war II, where we were able to defeat the stronger and, and, and well-practiced Japanese Navy because they let our, our, our sailors and, uh, to do what they need to do to win those battles. Am I off on that? Or is, is that, am I just, uh, glorifying history no you're you're not glorifying history there's a lot of truth to it the the u.s navy had a really good record before war ii of 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 allowing people to make mistakes uh because guys like uh the famous uh bull uh halsey and even the great uh overall admiral of the pacific fleet had all ran their ships aground or made serious career errors which would be today would have dismissed them admiral king i'm sorry uh, all those all those admirals would have been never allowed to go further but instead their mistakes were written off as errors in in the pursuit of doing the right thing of course we all know bull halsey was the great carrier fleet admiral and and uh, he ran his destroyer ground and those guys all made errors in the in, in the pre-navy that was uh even though they got they got chewed out or got in trouble it did not destroy their career as long as they didn't let let it happen again so yeah there's a lot of truth to that that the navy itself particularly in the submarine navy the the submarine navy is i can't understand why historically but they were the ones that really if there's any aspect of the pacific war the one arm that won the pacific war more than any was the submarine navy and because they worked on the the principle of mission command but they didn't call it that uh mission command itself is a, a is a german derivative poorly poorly translated german derivative but in the in the definition of it the the submarine fleet of the u.s navy in world war ii operated on they had to there was no way to control it uh and so they their ability to sink the entire or most the entire japanese uh Merchant marine and, and oil shipments was incredible and had it went a long way at, at diminishing the Japanese ability to win the war. And and that's that makes sense because now we're talking about when you're out of communication range and that you just can only go with with what the idea of the mission is and, and making those decisions based upon the information that you have uh prior to uh the, your last communications. And and that's that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it does. Uh, and and for some reason today, you know, it's like these recent uh, collisions that that the the Navy had uh, l- last couple of years. Remember those with the destroyers yeah. and Japanese ships? Yeah. Well, when you really look at those reports, and I read both of them, and then I interviewed a lot of sailors, not related directly to those ships, but are in, know the Navy culture. Uh, they say that's directly related to the fact of zero defects, total control. So that the moment that the technology goes down, the land navigation systems, the sensors, 
that allow them to see and know where they're at at night. The moment those went down, the the guys on the bridge were not able to make the decision because they had not been allowed to make decisions in practice. And in addition to that, those those uh, officers were overwhelmed. They were tired. They were worked to death because of the hazing mentality of the Navy. You know, you're a lieutenant or you're an ensign. You're going to learn the hard way like I did, and uh, you're going to be worked to death. And if you could gut it out, then you're going to make it to the higher rank. So those were all related to the zero defects culture that the Navy currently operates under. Yeah. You know, I, I've learned a lot of, you know, when I was in the Navy and the funny thing is, is that I've seen them take slowly, but surely take away command decisions, even from the, the captain of the ship. Um, you know, times that it used to be, you could go wherever you wanted to go, eat the food that you want to eat, hit the ports that you want to hit, you know, in no senses when you make your plans um, now they have a, a pretty regulated way of doing things. So I, I see your point on, on that one there. It's, it's taken away the ability to think on your feet. Why do you think that is? Uh, because you have a military that over the last 50 years has become more politicized. Then you had Vietnam. It really started in Vietnam where you had, uh, well, Korea actually, where you had limited wars, the fear of, uh, like what MacArthur attempted to do, and when he got fired with Truman, uh, disobey his political masters, and, and and Truman was right in doing that. Uh, but the bigger issue is you start seeing an encroachment during Vietnam with McNamara when he was Secretary of Defense that they could control everything through technology to limit the scope of the war because their biggest fear was a nuclear war with the Soviet Union and the and the Chinese interfering and going in on the side of the North Vietnamese. So you want to do what's called limited war, where you think you control, you can win a war while limited your your uh, use of resources. So you don't use total resources, you don't mobilize the country to win this war. Uh, and as a result, you begin doing what zero defects was coined by McNamara's uh, Defense Department as a way to be truly efficient. And the officer corps itself followed with uh, everything has to be perfect. Again, the code of perfection, where every level, your paper, for example, is checked for every period and every style. And even if, it, if it's written well, but it's not the style your boss wants, it's changed. So you're, you're in effect a ghostwriter uh, where every single PowerPoint slide is looked at and it has to be the certain way that the senior most guy wants it. I've seen generals dismiss briefers but for missing a period in a PowerPoint slide or having the font one size too large or small in a power that is all zero defects but the result of that is that you take away judgment from people it's the same thing in our society as we uh as we strive to be safer and more safe we add more stoplights and there's studies to back this up which is 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 really interesting we add more, we take more and more of the judgment or the decision making of people from individual drivers and they become basically robots and they, they become risk averse. Uh, you see that in the military. I saw a lot of examples in Iraq and Afghanistan that all of a sudden platoons and companies were put out on their own in a, in a combat outpost or a forward outpost, a fighting outpost, and they were expected to do their own thing. But they couldn't. And the reason they couldn't was because before they deployed, they were constantly being told how to do stuff and what to do. So my book is 
an attempt through intense academic research, and there's examples in there that when we develop people the correct way and we empower them, we get so much more out of an organization, regardless of the type it is. So, so that that that's the issue right there. You're going back to your question. It kind of started in the Korean War and the limited war sense. Uh, uh, with what MacArthur didn't want to limit it, he wanted to nuke the, the Chinese. And so, over time, the the political, uh, the congressional organizations uh, with oversight and the military itself begins uh, putting more and more policies, more and more regulations. And in Vietnam, uh, we became uh, really uh, obsessed with technology. They could compensate for human error and we could do everything through technology and it it created what's called zero defects so that's the answer to your question and now today the the army's a funny organization because I, I i pick on the army because i was with them most of the time uh and the navy and the air force are even worse but they create a personnel system that is built upon people achieving zero defects but war is totally totally chaotic no matter what technologies it introduced uh it's totally chaotic uh and and the last thing you need is so much control that no one will take initiative when the time calls for it. that's so true let's take a quick break when we come back i want to talk about how we can apply your lessons to emergency management seconds count during an emergency that's why at titan hst we're always inventing new technology to help people stay safe and help people who can provide help get connected with people who need help. At Titan HST, we've deployed mesh networking, allowing emergency communication, even when networks are down, augmented reality and real-time translation. We believe in the power of people to help each other stay safe and thrive. Thanks for uh, listening to our sponsor and, and please reach out to them and let them know that you heard about them here on EM Weekly because without them, uh, we couldn't bring uh, the quality programming that that we are bringing today. So, Donald, before we left, um, we're talking, you know, about your book and, and how it applied um, to decision making, specifically um, in the military. I'd like to kind of parlay this into what lessons can we take from the command structure that you see and and apply that to you know, the disaster response agencies uh, and emergency managers? Well, the, the big question across an organization is, like John Boyd said, people, ideals, hardware in that order. People are your most important asset. So from the very beginning, from the hiring, you got to say, you got to define what do we want in the basic emergency management person and then specific to that area, police, uh, first responders, uh, paramedics, fire department all have a different outcome. And then we backwards plan from that. And we and we understand that if we create a culture of mission command, people have to be, before we empower people, we have to develop them to be successful in it. And what that that's what the book's about. Because I go back to my example, the army constantly goes, oh, we're gonna we're gonna adopt mission command. But we're going to keep the personnel system that was created in 1947, which is based on scientific management and creates zero defects and careerists. We're going to create that system as our cultural baseline, while at the same time we tell people to go out and use mission command. 
And it's the same thing because, like I said, I've worked with police and fire department people, and they tell me the same thing that where they have been told to be empowered, but they're not allowed to be empowered. Uh, so I, I remember a quote from a general one time. Uh, I want you to go out and do mission command, but don't make mistakes, which is like totally contradiction. Right. Or what I heard about the D.C. fire department. You know, I want you to get to the spot, determine what's going on. And then I'll, as soon as I get there, I'll make the decision on what has to happen. And they may not be there until until that situation passes or it gets too dangerous to fix it. So what we got to do is. The problem is, until recently, we didn't understand how the Germans achieved what they did. They had the most advanced learning system in any army, and it's still advanced for today from the uh, late 1800s to the early 1900s, which, unlike what the media wants to tell you, they were not all Nazis. That didn't occur hardly at all, even after Hitler took power. And the other thing, they weren't obedient uh, robots. What they focused in their leaderships is Vergangstangligon, which is translated into person, people of character or strength of character. It's a 26-letter word, and they strive to develop people that would take responsibility, enjoy, and making decisions. And, and they had terms in their literature that we don't even have that define, for example, Gurdasangligon, which meant uh, the ability to change the order as the situation changed without getting back to hire. That's what it's loosely translated. They wrote things that we understand at the point of battle, the original order that was developed hours ago or days ago may not stand. And you're allowed to, uh, based on your observation of the situation, to change that order without getting in trouble. We have nothing like that. Our, our, our whole system would just go crazy because uh, right now we can tell someone to go do something and there's no there's no way for the subordinate to get back and say, hey, when I got here, the situation, well, I told you to do that. So I'm going to give you a bad mark or a less than perfect remark that's hidden, by the way. That makes it even worse. It's a subtle remark that's not perfect on your evaluation system. And then that'll destroy you later on in your career. That happened to me, by the way, uh, for, for telling the truth to someone that didn't want to hear the truth. Yeah, the most, the most deadly thing that you could put on, uh, on somebody's eval is uh, they have potential. Uh, it's one of those hidden remarks that uh, will kill you on your on your uh, fit rep, right? It, it's horrible. It's it's an indictment of the of the ethical conduct of the officer corps. You don't have the moral courage to say, "Look, I'm going to write this about you." Instead, there's subtle. There's an art to writing an evaluation report that's perfect, and we continually just breed the same careerist people that look right, say the right thing, but are really shallow. Uh, it's not everybody. There's some really good people that get through somehow. Uh, I know Don Boldick, Brigadier General Don Boldick is a great guy. He made one star, one of the best soldiers I've ever known. Uh, and others out there that are great Marines and soldiers. But uh, most of them, most of them, a lot of people are careers that know how to play the game. They look the part. They say the right things. Uh, but they don't understand Boyd's... Uh, approach to people ideals hardware in that order hardware's dominant because hardware gets you money hardware gets you work it gets you jobs and it's easy to measure uh, people and ideals are not so easy to measure and it takes a lot uh, a very big in-depth professional knowledge to understand how to evaluate success using 
people and ideals. There's a scene in the movie Heartbreak Ridge um, where this uh, major who was a supply major comes over and is talking to the gunny sergeant and says that they should put people like you into a glass case. They only break in case of war. And uh, that's, that's exactly what we're talking about. We're a guy who, who can think on his feet, um, you know, adapt, so, you know, adapt and overcome uh, is looked down upon by the ruling uh, majority in, in the, in the military. And it seems to be that we do that to ourselves as well in, in law enforcement and fire that the people who, uh, seem to think on their feet, seem to be drummed out of the, out of the job. Um, and I guess I'm, as emergency managers and, and those of us that are in, in these positions, you know, how do we, how do we change that culture? You know, I guess that's the, the question. How do we change that, that approach to, um, to managing disasters? You evolve that culture. And, and, and fortunately there's great, there's examples out there historically uh, where the, you know, one of the things I ask my audiences over and over is what to find a flat organization. Because a flat organization structurally is what a mission command organization is. And and what's odd about that, the few organizations that have adopted that approach, the morale is the most, the most highest. The success rate is the most highest. Yes, early on, and here's I'm answering your question with examples. Early on, there's errors made in people trying to do the right thing. But the chain of command stands up and explains that to the political leaders instead of turning around saying, Oh, we have to have massive re-education programs because you all screwed up instead of taking care of the few that uh, in an era of immorality or unethical conduct, uh, they did wrong. So take care of them, but don't assume everyone's this is bad. Uh, so the, the chain of command needs to take the lumps any organization that adopts mission command and there, like I said, there've been army and Marine organizations I've seen do this early. The first step is the senior leaders bring in the right people. And then they develop the right people through a strenuous learning system. And then they allow them to go out and experiment and make mistakes in the act of doing the right thing. And they stand up, they take, they take the hits for those people. That's the big thing. And then once they do that, those those organizations those units start out performing everybody we we took the georgetown rotc program from 241st to number one in three years using these methods we took hits we had to explain things to the chain of command why we were getting rid of people or why we were not doing the approved curriculum and program of instruction poi as we know it but we we produced results and we made things happen to the point where they left us alone. And then they used, started using us as an example to everybody else. So it can be done. Is it easy? No. That's why most people don't do it. Does it work? Yes. If you really believe in it and have done your homework, you can make this happen. But like you, like you pointed out earlier, when we talked about zero defects, the chain of command has to be willing to take some lumps and not worry about their next promotion. That's the big problem. Right. And it seems to be the the problem across the board. Jim Collins kind of writes about that in good to great regarding organizations yeah. that, uh, are, that, that are flat and, and let people, uh, make mistakes and, and learn from those mistakes. Yep. He does. And that's a great book. I read that a long time ago, but the flat organization is one. And I have a chapter in the book uh, about John Shirley Wood in the fourth armor division. He was a flat organization, even though he was big on every little standard being attained for pride and attention to detail. 
once they become the unit began doing field problems, he allowed them to experiment, make mistakes as long as they were in the act of following his intent. He took up over, he took up for his guys, even to the point where he got relieved a couple of times and reinstated in exercises by older generals that wanted everything followed by the rules. The division got to the point after two years under his command, when it first started Operation Cobra on July 26, 1944 in Normandy, they did not employ any written operations orders, which is unheard of in the American Army, where we produce 100-page operations orders for a company-sized range today. Sure. But he got it to the point where they could, they could critically think, they could problem-solve, uh, because he emphasized early on uh, knowing your business, knowing the task at hand. Uh, and then he put everything, he did all the training in the context of a problem. That's key. So I'm not teaching you something about how to put together a machine gun. I'm actually doing it under the pressure and maybe you're in the field, you're under fire when you have a jammed machine gun. So you understand the why, why this is important. That's a small example, but it's, it applies to everything. In, in an outcomes-based learning environment, which we're emphasizing in the Marine Corps now, uh, with some great leaders, General uh, 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 Mullins at uh, TCOM, and then the Commandant uh, of the new Commandant, General Berger, are emphasizing learning to, to overcome the things we talked about. So like I said, there's great leaders out there knowing to do the right thing. All the stars are aligning for the Marines to really adopt a culture that is flat, that practices maneuver warfare and mission orders. And they understand, General Berger and Mullen understand that it has to be done uh, in with learning. And they're pushing to change all that, which is awesome. And I'm getting to be, I'm part of that with a bunch of other great people. But to go back to your uh, question there is a flat organization is one that knows its talent and it continually task organizes for a given problem. So while they may have a structure that's, administratively sound uh, to satisfy the HR people or to satisfy, you know, uh, out-of-date regulations. The true person takes his organization and reorganizes it for every problem so the best people are solving the problem. As soon as the problem's solved, they reorganize. That's what J.S. Wood did for the 4th Armored Division. You want to read a good book about it, read a book called Tiger Jack by Jim Baldwin, written about John Shirley Wood in the 4th Armored Division. It's uh, limited print. It's hard to find. but uh, uh, I, And I wrote a couple of articles about J.S. Wood in the 4th Armored Division as well in Armor Magazine. But it was remarkable. And people have gotten with me and don't believe me that they, they could operate without written orders. Well, it just it's my example that I say in the book. If you learn and develop correctly and have that positive culture and you learn how to what flag organizations really are, you can operate without verbal written orders. You can operate without waiting for be told as long as your people are empowered to understand your intent and read the situation as is and make decisions. So that's what has to happen. If you could say one thing to all the emergency managers in the world at one time, what would it be? Trust. Without trust, you can't have an effective organization. And you build trust through professional development. And professional development is being innovative in how you learn. Lecture is the worst kind. It's, there's a place for it, but there are so many ways to make learning fun while it's tough and fun. 
best training I ever went through or best learning I ever went through was I had a blast. And then and before I realized it was over with, I was what we call smoke. I was totally tired, but I learned so much because I was empowered to make the decisions and figure out how to do things. Another chapter I have in the book is about the Army Recon course, how they do everything they do there from uh, assigning a packing list, which they don't. They make you figure it out. So how do they do physical training is all done in the context of a problem. And they're really good at it. And they had some great people that I've mentioned in the book that helped them. I was one of them, but that, it was not just me. There was a lot of other uh, people that helped them out, figure out how to do it. And for years, they were able to do this thing. But training and doctrine command is so bent on standardizing everything and controlling everything that they crush all, all kind of initiative like what Army Recon Course is trying to do. Uh, it's the same with a few ROTC programs and the Department of Military Instruction at West Point did some great stuff for like five years under Colonel Casey Haskins, where it was a flat organization that constantly evolved, constantly reorganized, and the cadets loved the learning they were getting. They, they, all, they all told me. I talked to them all the time because I was fortunate enough to get to go teach up there as a guest every few every few months at West Point Military Academy. And the, the cadets would say, what we really loved about the Department of Military Instruction right now is while the learning is fun, it's tough. And that's that's you can do it. But pe the, the instructors, the cadre have to have the initiative. They have to have the imagination. They don't have to be brilliant. They don't have to be uh, super teachers. They just have to have the willingness and the moral courage to want the best for their students and always find a better way to teach them. So going back to your question is trust. And how do you build trust? Because without trust, you can't have an effective organization. If I tell someone they're going to do something, then I know they're going to do it without me checking on. Does that give you an answer? That's 100% great. Awesome. That is a great answer. Well, Don, thank you so much for your time today. And uh, thank you for, for writing that book. And, and I highly recommend um, people checking it out. Um, so how can they find it? Well, you know, first I got to thank you because this has been awesome. I've been doing a, about a, one interview a, a month or one interview a week since it came out. And it's getting great reviews, by the way. And a lot of people help me with it. So how do you find it? Go to Amazon and put Adopting Mission Command or my name, Donald Vandergriff or Vandergriff, Mission, Adopting Mission Command. Uh, the price has gone down, fortunately. And by the way, I had nothing to do with the high price. It was at $49. Now it's down to $46, 45 but if you join the Naval Institute Press, which is the publisher, and I'm proud to publish for them because they're a great, great press, very academically sound press. If you go join the Naval Institute Press for a few dollars, you can get the Christmas deal of $24.95, $24.95 on their site. Uh, so that's the best way to get a good price on the book. Other than that, it's on Amazon. And I'll make sure that those links are, are in the show notes as well. And uh, again, it was a pleasure speaking to you. And I hope you have a wonderful uh, Christmas holiday. Can I say one last thing? Please? Oh, sure. Yeah, please do. I let people know out there that I offer uh, Mission Command workshops one to five days based on the book. And there's articles that have been written on it. And, and it mentions all the, the how-to in the book talks about it. They just need to contact me at the at the personal email that uh, you contact me by VandegriffDonald at you at USA.net. Awesome, and to make sure again, like all that stuff is going to be in the show notes. So, Donald, thank you so much for your time today. 
and I hope you have a wonderful uh, holiday season. And thank you for the interview, and I hope I best I wish the best. If you need anything, let me know. Will do. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of EM Weekly, and please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast player, and also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.